Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. So before we jump into Chapter 7 of The Stand, I just wanted to uh, go over some quick news for you guys. Um, Yesterday on Josh Boone's Instagram account, which you can find at Josh Boone Movies, he had officially confirmed that Odessa Young will be playing Fran Goldsmith in the CBS All Access limited series coming up next year. Um, I took a look at Odessa Young's IMDb page, um, and I think the one thing I recognize her from the most is a movie that came out last year called Assassination Nation. Um, But, you know, Odessa Young looks the part. She's the right age. Um, I'm really excited to see uh, her portrayal of Franny. And I'm really excited that we're getting some official confirmation on some of these rumored casting uh, choices. So I imagine uh, that if The Stand is going to start filming in September, as it's been reported on a couple of sites, um, that we'll be getting a lot more news regarding the casting in the next couple of weeks. Um, They're supposed to start filming in Vancouver in September and wrapping in March of 2020, which makes sense because I know CBS All Access had uh, announced that they were looking to premiere The Stand in 2020. So I imagine that we'll probably get that next fall, maybe, uh, maybe sooner. I'm not sure. But I mean, this is a massive undertaking. And Josh Boone had also posted on his Instagram that they were in Vancouver now doing scouting for locations. Um And again, if you're not following him on Instagram, you really should be because this will be a great source of maybe some progress of what's happening um, on the production of The Stand. So I'm really excited, you guys. Um, I've been trying to really kind of hone in my... My my fandom, my fangirlishness, I guess. <laughs> but I've been waiting so long for this. So I'm really, really excited. Um, I know with the casting announcements last week, um, or the rumored announcements, I guess I should say, um, the reaction to these names have been really interesting. Um, people seem to be fairly, it seems to be fairly positive reaction. Um, I know some people had said, you know, Greg Kinnear wasn't old enough to play Glenn, but you know what? Greg Kinnear is a fantastic actor. Um, I am 100% on board with him playing, uh, Glenn Bateman. I think that would be fantastic. Um, I think the one name that most people had the strongest opinion on was Whoopi Goldberg as Mother Abigail. Admittedly, I'm a little wary of this as well, but the more I've thought about it, um, she's a good actress. Uh, She's got an Oscar, and uh, she was fantastic in Ghost, The Color Purple. Um, I think... We just we've known her for so long as the one of the co-hosts on The View. Uh, But in the 90s, I mean, she was she was all over the place. Uh, She was on Star Trek and uh, I I never watched Star Trek, um, but I got some comments on my Instagram about the casting choices. Um, Martine, and I hope I pronounced that right. If I did not, I apologize. Um, She commented about Whoopi saying that she, she said, I'm very intrigued by the idea of Whoopi playing Mother Abigail. She has the gravity and range to really make the role her own. Just look at her work as, is it Guinan? I'm so sorry. I don't know how to pronounce that because I didn't watch Star Trek, but on Star Trek, people think of her as a comedian, but that's not all there is to her. 
My only concern is that they'll have to go hardcore on the aging makeup. And as far as our fondest wishes, no one specific, but can we get some diversity in our cast of survivors? Yes, I 100% am on board with this. Uh, The book itself does not have a lot of diversity, but I am really hoping that they uh, mix it up a little bit in the casting choices uh, for the the series. I would love to see more diversity. Um, I also, like I said, I agree about Whoopi. I'm I'm going to withhold judgment on all of these casting choices uh, until I see them in the role, I guess. Um, you know, Ruby D was in her 70s, I believe, when she played Mother Abigail in the 1994 series. And the makeup was great. They did age her properly. I thought that I thought she was older when I watched The Stand because I saw it when I was 14. I didn't know how old Ruby D really was. And, you know technology has progressed so much since then that I, I'm not, I'm not overly concerned about the makeup. Um, I think that they could age her just fine. Um, Strictly Stephen King on Instagram said, Henry Zaga is going to kill it for Nick Andros. Exactly how I pictured him. I think Marsden will make a great stew too. For Larry, this sounds weird, but I always pictured a young Charlie Sheen. I don't know that I saw a lot of movies with a young Charlie Sheen when I was younger. I remember Lucas with Corey Haim and uh, Carrie Green, I remember. Um, But yeah, I could see that maybe back in the day. Uh, Obviously not so much now, but that's an interesting choice for Larry. I got an email from SP with their own stand Dreamcast. They had, uh, as Harold, Adam Driver, Nick Andros, Jake Gyllenhaal, Lloyd would be Tom Hardy, Larry Underwood, Chris Pratt, Randall Flagg, Bradley Cooper, Stu Redman, John Hamm, and Fran Amelia Clark. This is a hardcore Hollywood cast. <laughs> um, I feel like this would be like the big screen three movie trilogy. Um, John Hamm might be a little too old to play Stu, but I know James Marston is like 45, so that could probably that could work, you know. Um, very interesting cast. Uh, it's so fun for me to see or hear, uh, what you guys, who you guys would want to see in these roles. I mean, this cast is so expansive. Um, and there's so many iconic roles. Like I want to know who's going to play the kid. Please have the kid in the stand. Um, I know Josh Boone said this was going to be rated R. Um, and years ago when he was uh, on Kevin Smith's podcast, and I cannot remember the name of the podcast for the life of me, but he did an interview with Josh Boone who said we would see the kid. So I'm hoping that's still um, in play. And I really like those roles. I can't wait to see who they get. Um And I really want to hear from you guys still. Like, if you have uh, somebody that you would love to see in the role of one of your favorite characters, and if money was no object, you could get anybody that you wanted, who would it be? Uh, You can send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or just pop me a quick uh, comment at The Circle Opens on Twitter or Instagram. That would be awesome. So beyond that, I think that's all the news I have on the stand at the moment. I will try to keep you updated uh, when anything else is announced. Uh, I do have a blog called The Circle Opens. What? At thecircleopens.com. Or I post on my Twitter quite a bit when something new comes through. So if you want to give me a follow, that would be fabulous. And before we jump into Chapter 7, 
I want to give a quick shout out to Secondhand Bookery. If you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, or collectibles, make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code The Circle for 20% off their order anytime. And there is always free shipping to the United States. Uh, you can find copies of Carrie, Pet Cemetery, Salem's Lot, It, uh, of course, The Stand. And there are many more popular titles in stock. So check them out at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Okay, so we're going to jump into Chapter 7. Uh, of book one, Captain Trips. And a quick recap from last week, Fran Goldsmith in Maine has finally told her father, Peter, that she's pregnant. Her father is surprised, but he's there to support Fran as they discuss Fran's mother, Carla, and what Fran uh, ultimately wants to do, not only with the baby, but with Jess, her boyfriend. And she admits to Peter that she wants to keep the baby. Uh, Peter... Uh, asks her not to tell Carla for a couple of days, and Fran agrees. And so from Maine, we are taken to Atlanta, Georgia, where Chapter 7 begins. And this is where the men of Arnett, Texas, uh, were brought to be observed. Uh, Five of the six men who witnessed Charles Campion's death are infected with the super flu that killed Campion and his wife and daughter. Vic Palfrey, is in a hospital bed uh, suffering from a fever, a lot of phlegm, and delirium. He wakes up and he realizes he's got an IV and a catheter. He's got tubes all over the place. Uh, He even thinks he's got something uh, shoved up his (laughs) you-know-what. It's not pleasant. Uh, Vic also realizes he's lost about 30 pounds since he got sick, which, if you think about the timeline here, um, has not been that long. So that's a dangerous amount of weight to be losing in such a short period of time. Uh, Vic is suffering from delirium. He begins to hear, excuse me, he begins to hear his mother's voice uh, talking about his brother George. George, uh, Vic remembers, who dies six days after his deployment to Korea. And he thinks about his mom, who died of TB in 1947. Uh, He starts to look around the room and notices the door is not a door that you often see in a hospital. It's a rounded door with pop rivets, and the lower jam is about six inches up from the floor. It's a steel door. And we are finally under the, who knows if this is an actual hospital or maybe a specialized hospital. Uh, Vic starts to panic um, and he's trying to clear some of the confusion clouding his memory. He has brief flashes of that night at the Texaco uh, when Campion crashed his Chevy into the pumps. Um, But it's also a little intermingled with his brother's voice. So Vic is very, very sick. The lights suddenly go on in Vic's room and scares him. Um, He sees a window with several layers of glass where a row of faces are observing him. And this frightens him. But the scare is what clears his head. And then he remembers, you know, he remembers Hap. He remembers Norm and Norm's wife and kids. It reads, But the sudden fright that had come with the silent bloom of light and this vision of staring faces like a jury of ghosts in their hospital whites had cleared away some of the blockage in his mind, and he knew where he was. Atlanta. Atlanta, Georgia. They had come and taken him away. Him and Hap and Norm and Norm's wife and Norm's kids. They had taken Hank Carmichael, Stu Redman. God alone knew how many others. Vic had been scared and indignant 
Sure, he had the snuffles and sneezes, but he surely wasn't coming down with cholera or whatever it was that poor man Campion and his family had. He had been running a low-grade fever, too, and he remembered that Norm Brewitt had stumbled and needed help getting up the steps to the plane. His wife had been scared, crying, and little Bobby Brewitt had been crying, too, crying and coughing, a raspy, croupy cough. The plane had been at the small landing strip outside of Braintree, but to get beyond the Arnett town limits, they had to pass a roadblock on US-93, and men had been stringing bob wire, stringing bob wire right out into the desert. This is already a bit disconcerting, um, but things get worse when somebody comes into the room. This person is dressed in a white pressure suit with a faceplate. The man has pressure tanks on his back. Uh, this is not exactly what you would expect from a doctor. And this man asks Vic how he's feeling. But Vic is delirious again. Uh, he's picturing his mother in the pressure suit instead of the doctor. And the doctor gives Vic a shot. And Vic hears him tell the others that if this shot doesn't work, they'll lose Vic by midnight. From Vic's room, we're taken to another. And this particular room is holding Stu Redman. A pretty nurse is attempting to take Stu's blood pressure. But Stu is being a rather stubborn patient, to put it mildly, and the nurse is trying to talk him into cooperating. But Stu refuses until he talks to a doctor. Finally, the nurse gives up and leaves, and Stu gets up from the bed to kind of wander restlessly around the room. Uh, like Vic's room, there's a glass window, but there is no one observing him. Uh, we learn Stu is still healthy. He's not showing any signs of the illness that has affected his other friends. Uh, but while he's uh, in this hospital, he's being kept in the dark. No one is telling him anything. And now Stu is refusing to cooperate with these tests until somebody speaks to him. Uh, we find out that Stu is not a fan of doctors or hospitals just based on how they treat people. He remembers when his wife got sick um, and she was dying of cancer when she was 27. The doctors had sidestepped her questions. They would change the subject or they would speak in technical jargon that nobody could understand. And at that point in his life, you know, Stu just remained silent. He didn't question. He didn't push. Uh, but this is different, he finds. He understands that this flu is contagious. It moves fast until you choke to death on your own snot or the fever gets you. And we get a more clear picture from Stu because he hadn't, unlike the others, he hadn't been uh, so sick that he couldn't understand what was happening. And we also realize that this goes well beyond just the six men from the Texaco. Stu's recollection reads, They had come and got him on the afternoon of the 17th, two days ago. Four army men and a doctor, polite but firm. There was no question of declining. All four of the army men had been wearing sidearms. That was when Stu Redman started being seriously scared. There had been a regular caravan going out of Arnett and over to the airstrip in Braintree. Stu had been riding with Vic Palfrey, Hap, the Bruits, Hank Carmichael and his wife, and two army noncoms. They were all crammed into an army station wagon, and the army guys wouldn't say I, nay, or maybe, no matter how hysterical Lila Bruit got. The other wagons were crammed, too. Stu hadn't seen all the people in them, but he had seen all five of the Hodges family and Chris Ortega, brother of Carlos, the volunteer ambulance driver. Chris was the bartender down at the Indian Head. He had seen Parker Nason and his wife, the elderly couple from the trailer park near Stu's house. 
Stu guessed that they had netted up everyone who had been in the gas station and everyone that the people from the gas station said they had talked to since camping crashed into the pumps. At the town limits, there had been two olive green trucks blocking the road. Stu guessed the other roads going to our net were most likely blocked off too. They were stringing barbed wire, and when they had the town fenced off, they would probably post sentries. So it was serious. Deadly serious. Without much to do in the room, uh, Stu is, he begins to think about the condition of the people he had ridden to the airstrip with. They all had the sniffles, mild coughs, and runny noses. Stu remembered that one of, uh, one thing that frightened him the most was when the army driver let loose three sneezes. Of course, that could be a coincidence, um, but probably not, maybe not. And it scared Stu because he's thinking about how quickly something like that could jump from person to person. On the plane, uh, they had alcohol, so quite a few of them get drunk. And Lila, Norm's wife, begins to have a major meltdown when Norm faints. Uh, She's demanding answers, but she gets none. She's hysterical until one of the army guys gives her a glass of milk, and she kind of chills out then. So there is likely something that was in the milk that kind of sedated her. Um, he's thinking all of this stuff, but, you know, he's brought out of his thoughts by the arrival of a doctor, Dr. Denninger. This is a young man, uh, described as having short or sharp features, and he reproaches Stu for giving the nurse trouble, but Stu wants answers. Denninger claims that he can't give him any, of course, and Stu threatens to make things hard on them. Denninger says he understands this, uh, but he doesn't have the authority to give Stu any details, Stu asks about Arnett and why there's nothing on the news about the town. Um, he knows it's been quarantined, but it's the media is not covering this. Um, so Stu decides to threaten to poke holes in the pressure suits of anybody who comes near him. He makes a playful graph for Deniger, who panics. And Deniger tells Stu that he's not being reasonable. He's doing his country a great disservice. But Stu does not care. He sees it differently that the country is doing him a great disservice because he's the one locked up in a Georgia hospital talking to a doctor who doesn't know a thing about the test that they're running. Stu wants someone who will talk to him, somebody who can answer his questions. And Stu is willing to fight anyone who comes in to take his blood without giving him the information that he wants. Deniger finally leaves and Stu is once again left on his own. He turns on the television in his room again, um, but he can't concentrate. He's picturing Campion and Campion's wife and daughter. And except now Stu is imagining uh, Lila's face on Campion's wife's body and Cheryl Hodges as the baby. Uh, If you remember, Cheryl Hodges was the little girl that Lila was babysitting uh, in a couple chapters back. Stu is doing his very best to remain stoic, uh, to not show his fear, but his, he felt his, I like this quote, he felt his fear twisting. It is another 40 hours before they send somebody in who could talk to Stu. So the men of Arnett are not doing too well, which we already knew, but we finally see firsthand just how bad it's gotten. Uh, Vic is in a very bad way. He is not likely to survive or make it past midnight. 
And we don't get any information on the others other than how they were getting on that plane to go to Atlanta. Um, We do know Stu is still healthy. So at this point, he is likely immune to the super flu. But Stu is scared, too, as he should be. You know, he's not going to cooperate with the doctors or scientists until he knows why they are there and what is happening. Uh, Arnett is under quarantine from the Army, and I agree with Stu. This should be on the news. It's a big deal, but it's not. So it's being covered up either by the government or, you know, the, I, I can't imagine the media is in on this because they like to talk about everything. So here is... I like this chapter. Um, It's short, but I like that we see Stu is not someone to be reckoned with. He is willing to go down with a fight if anyone comes in and tries to force these tests on him. He is not going to cooperate until he gets the answers that he wants and deserves. He wants to know what happened to everybody else. Um, I think... (laughs) We already know Stu is a quiet guy, but I like that we still see his fear beneath the surface. Um, He's trying to be brave. He's trying to be tough. uh, And he is not going to give in to these people until he gets his answers. And it's not just Hap and Vic and the men who were there at the Texaco that night. Um, We find out that it's everybody. It's a lot of people. It's the Hodges family. The Hodges was who Lila was babysitting for. Sounds like their entire family is infected now. Uh, The brother of the ambulance who picked up a campion that night he died. Um, Even an elderly couple who lives in a trailer park. Uh, These people, it's not only the people who are at the Texaco, but people who had spoken to them since campion died. Um, We don't really know anything about Joe Bob Brentwood yet and where he's been, but I think that we're going to be getting to that. And I I really like how uh, King is staggering these chapters. We're getting some insight into our main characters now, uh, what their lives are like uh, before the super flu hits, and what obstacles may be there when the flu finally decimates the country. Um, Obviously, Stu is someone we didn't get a lot. We got a little bit of his background in that first chapter because he is at uh, he's around patient zero. He comes in contact with patients at Campion before like Larry or Fran. So we don't get a whole lot of how his daily life was. Um, but that's okay. We're getting plenty of that from Larry, plenty of that from Fran, and we're going to be introduced to even more characters coming up. Um, but I like that in between these chapters, King is still moving this story along. He is taking us back to our net and then to Atlanta to focus on Captain Trips, um, what it might be, what could potentially happen. Uh, the characters are very interesting to me, even the minor ones. Like I, I'm feeling it for Vic and for Hap. Like we didn't, we don't know a lot about these guys, but they don't deserve this. And I'm, I'm really sad for all of them, to be honest with you. Uh, The characters, I mean, the chapters of the flu um, and how horrific it is, the little bits of information that we're getting from uh, the chapter with Starkey and, you know, even the first chapter, the prologue with Campion. Um, the stakes are high. And going back to the flu, going back to what's happening reminds us that there's a lot to lose here. So things are starting to spiral uh, out of control now. And um, why is Stu the one, the only one right now who's not sick? You know, what is it about him that is fighting off this virus? And, you know, how many of the people who came from Arnett are still alive? 
uh, like Stu, we want we we aren't getting any answers, and we want the answers, which is a good sign of a great page turner. Like you want to keep going, you want to know what's going to happen, um, and you know we can relate to the frustration. So. Will the super flu continue to spread and has it already for all we know? When will it reach Larry in New York or Franny in Maine? Um, and I love it because next week in Chapter 8, King is going to give us a lesson on just how quickly Captain Trips is infecting the country. Um, so that's really the end of the chapter. And um Again, I want to thank everybody for continuing on this journey with me. Um, I was just a quick side note that I found amusing. Um, I was talking to my husband last night about the official casting of Odessa Young as Fran Goldsmith. Um, my husband is not a reader. <laughs> he, he's, just, he's not. So sometimes when I uh, rant or rave about books, um, he'll listen. It's great, um, but he doesn't really get it. And so I'm talking to him about the various people, James Marston, Greg Kinnear, Whoopi. And he asked me uh, who was going to play Captain Trips. <laughs> and I thought he was kidding. I started to laugh and he just gave me this look like uh, he thought Captain Trips was a real person. So then I had to explain to him that this is the name of the super flu. I have a shirt uh, that I got from Ka-Tet19. Um they make some excellent Stephen King shirts. I think you should check them out. Just Google them. But anyway, I have a shirt that says, I, sur I survived Captain Trips. And uh, I think he's been thinking this whole time that Captain Trips is a person. So I had to had to educate him a little bit there on uh, the stand and what to expect because I fully intend on making him watch the CBS All Access miniseries with me when it comes out next year. And I will be watching the 1994 miniseries um, and doing a review of those uh, episodes here on the Circle Opens podcast. And I'm kind of hoping that he'll watch them with me uh, because maybe then I can convince him to uh, be a guest on my podcast and kind of uh, get an outside view from somebody who doesn't know a lot about the story to see what they think about it. So that might be interesting. We'll see. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you for hanging out with me today. And if you are enjoying the podcast, it would be awesome if you would leave me a rating and review on iTunes. And again, if you have any more thoughts on the casting for the Stand series, or you want to drop me a line about this chapter or any of the previous six chapters, uh, you can reach me at my email, uh, thecirclecloses at gmail.com. And I think that's it for this weekend. So uh, I hope you guys are staying healthy and enjoying the weather as it is. And uh, M-O-O-N, that spells. See you next week. <laughs>